so far, though, what we've talked about in the, the previous weeks is, number one, uh, the problem of emotional unhealth was week one. Two, we talked about knowing yourself so that you can know God. Week three was going back so you can go forward. Week number four was journey through the wall. Week number five, which I know everyone's favorite, was grief and loss. And uh, last week, we talked about um, rest and Sabbath. And I know Pastor Charles uh, did a great job. I heard a lot of uh, great feedback from that, so that's wonderful. And um, what I think is so amazing about last week and talking about rest is giving permission to rest. It's okay to rest. You don't have to be doing something 24 hours a day, seven days a week to have value. The very first day of existence for humanity on this earth was a day of rest. God created humanity, and the first thing he told them to do was rest. And that's what we have to do in our lives. I think if you really want to be emotionally healthy and spiritually healthy, you have to begin to rest. To not rest is disobedience. We don't really like to hear that. But to not rest is disobedience. God wants you to rest. I heard someone last week said they almost didn't come last week because they didn't want to hear one more thing that was wrong with them. And uh, I, I just wanted to say that was never the intention of this series to point out things that were wrong with you. But just an opportunity as we address the iceberg in our lives, issues will rise to the surface when we do that. And it's not to shame you or make you feel bad about you. It's just an opportunity to invite God in the process and say, I'm not yet where you want me to be. Help me to get there. Help me to get there. You can either ignore it or you can address it. And sometimes when we address it, it makes us feel bad. But hey, no guilt, no condemnation here. And today, like I said, we just want to talk about loving well. And I would ask the question at the beginning of what is love? And if I ask that, I'm sure there's a picture in your mind. There's a sensation that you have, a feeling. There's a, maybe a movie scene, maybe a song. Any of you couples in here have a song you know, that you dance to at your wedding or when you hear it, it makes you think about you know, your spouse, whatever. You have maybe a song. We, we have a lot of ideas about love. And most of those ideas are related to how we feel. How love makes me feel. What is love? We would describe a feeling, a sensation. But really, love is not just a feeling. That is a byproduct, I think, of love. Love is really a decision. It's an action. It's an attitude. As we, Tim read today during worship, it says that God is love. That love is really a person, and that person is God. But as we ask what love is, we can come up with definitions. I want to read to you just a couple quotes about love. This is the, the Russian author Dostoevsky. He said this, that love in practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Anybody say amen? <laughs> love in practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. We've all had a dream of love, right? And then you engage in a relationship and that dream neither becomes reality or reality replaces the dream. Love in theory, wonderful to talk about, wonderful to feel. When you have to love somebody, it's difficult to do in reality. And that's the thing, love is not a theory, it's, it's very practical, it's a very real thing that we do. I love this quote, and it says this, that love is to reveal the beauty of another person to themselves. Love is to reveal the beauty of another person to themselves. Love is not just about us. Love is about revealing the beauty of another person to themselves. Love is selfless, not selfish. I want love, but am I willing to give love? Am I willing to have an attitude and an action of love in my life? And we could ask all day long, what is love? And I could gather your definitions and you can feed them to me. And 
Or we could just say, what is the best definition of love that exists? And I believe it's from 1 Corinthians 13, God defining love. If God is love, if we'll agree to that, God is love. It's who he is. It's his character. Then he's the one who ultimately gets to define love for you and me. And Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians. Now, it's really important that we understand to whom Paul wrote this. He wrote it to the church at Corinth. Now, Corinth was a a major city, a port city. People from other nations were in and out of this city. On a hill, they had the goddess of love. and There was a temple to the goddess of love. This temple had temple prostitutes, right? What they would do at night is the temple prostitutes would come down into the city, have sex with men and women as they proselytized the goddess of love. Think about that. Paul is writing to this very sensual city, defining love on the basis of eroticism and sex alone, what love is. Think about how countercultural it is. I think it's how amazing it is that Paul would write this. Choose the church at Corinth, not the church at Ephesus, not the church at Galatia, not the church at Philippi, but the church at Corinth to say, this is what love is. Now, if you read Corinthians, you find out that those people who were saved, they were doing some crazy stuff. Read the first, read the opening chapters of Corinthians. They were, they were suing each other. There were young men who were sleeping with their father's wives. And these were people who had, who had chosen to believe in God. Paul is having to define for them, this is what love is. Not what you've learned about in culture. Not what the goddess of love has told you it is. But this is what, who God is. And this is what love is. I think it's so important to understand who and when the Bible was written to, right? The culture and the time. And it's so amazing because if we're honest, we could think that we too have a goddess of love on a hill somewhere in our culture, right? And it comes down in various forms to define for you and I what love really is. But here's, where, here's Paul's counter-cultural cultural against the grain words to those brand new believers at Corinth. He says this, Starting in verse 4 of chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. In anywhere in that definition do you find love being a sensation? No, it is a decision. It has character traits to it. It is a person. If you need a definition of God, you can come and say, okay, God is love. So what is God? God is patient and kind. He does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on its own way to the detriment of you and I. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice in wrong redoing, but he rejoices in the truth. He bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. God never fails. Think about that for a moment. Maybe if you've got this hung up on your wall somewhere, you can read it a bit differently. And you see, this is, this is who God is. And this is how he's calling you and I to love. Now, that's really difficult. Because as I read all those things, I say, yeah, not doing that. Yeah, no, no, no. And I realize and recognize that this is not a love that I can produce and conjure up in my own being, that it requires God through the power of his Holy Spirit to love me in this way, and then I in turn love others in this way. 
If you want to be an emotionally mature adult, you have to learn how to love well. But you have to learn how to be loved by God. So let me just define for you. If you say, okay, now what is an emotionally healthy adult? Here it is, real simple. Part of growing into an emotionally mature Christian is this, learning how to apply practically and effectively the truths we believe. If you want to be an emotionally mature Christian, you have to learn how to apply practically and effectively what you believe or what you profess to believe. Part of the problem with Christianity in the world today, like Gandhi said, I love your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. We say, well, that's Gandhi. He wasn't a believer. Case in point. We're not trying to reach each other if we already believe. I love your Christ. I don't love your Christians. What are you saying? I love what the Bible represents and what it professes to put forward, but I don't see that represented in the people who say they believe in him. That's what he's saying. If you say you are a Christian and you don't practically and effectively live that out, one may wonder if you're a hypocrite. Now, this is not like supposed to be heavy and feel condemned. It's just saying, hey, if you don't act on it, just don't tell people you believe it. How's that? It's like me. Hey, I'm going to work out. I'm going to lose weight and go to the gym. And then you see me three months later and I've gained weight. Do you think I worked out and went to the gym? No. And I probably should stop telling people I'm working out and going to the gym. In the same way, and I would say this, if we believe it, if we really, really believe it, then it is almost going to be impossible not to live it out. If we really have had that heart change, we've experienced that love of the Father that is not rude, that is patient and kind. Not saying that we will 100% always be perfect, but it matters what we say and what we do and how we treat one another. You, could, you can quote all the scripture you want at people. And at the end of the day, they're going to look and see, how did they treat me? How did they act when the pressure was on? That's what people will remember. You could be an encyclopedia of Scripture. But it is Scripture made manifest in your life is what people see. Christ living in you, not the ability to quote something. I'm all for memorizing Scripture. But may our goal be to live it and not just be able to say it. Saying it's a lot easier than living it. And realizing I'm not living it on my own. It's the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that's helping me do that. Okay? So, practically and effectively living out the truths we believe. Now, I want to just start off with two myths that we believe as Christians sometimes as it relates to maturity. Emotional maturity. Okay? Here's the first one. We believe that when we become a, a Christian, Christ lives in us. Very true, not a myth. But here's the myth. We automatically become emotionally mature. Met Jesus on Sunday. On Monday, I was completely mature. Never had a problem once again. Hey, I know we're a new creation. Paul says that. I'm a new creation. And Christ lives in me. However, there's a whole lot of past in me that I have to unlearn. This is a journey and a process, not an event. Just like you grow physically and you grow spiritually, you grow emotionally, okay? You don't automatically become the picture of emotional maturity the moment you meet Jesus. And we can't believe that. It's dangerous to believe that. Why is it dangerous? Because if God is supposed to just, boom, do it, then when you're not acting like that, or people say, well, I don't like you, I don't like this, you're acting this way, you can say, it's not me, it's God. 
I got saved. He took care of it. And you don't have to take responsibility. But if you believe you're on a journey and you can recognize, yeah, that's still an area in my life that is still unlike Christ. I need to grow. You become a much more uh, able to live with human being. Right? So it's dangerous. We see this in, in the, uh, the nation of Israel. God set them free from Egypt. They were slaves for over 400 years. They are free. But yet for 40 years, an entire generation cannot enter the promised land. Why? Because they will not let go of the past. They will not move from being a slave to being set free and rescued in God. And God, they can't get into the promised land because they're still acting as if they were a slave. That's what you and I do. We get saved, but we hold on to the past. We hold on to what we knew because there's comfort in dysfunction. As dysfunctional as it may be, at least it's known. It's uncomfortable trying to do something new, not knowing how it's going to work out. That requires trust. That requires faith. That's a process and a journey. So you still may be a jerk sometimes. And that's okay as long as you recognize it. And you can say, I'm sorry, and grow. So just because you meet Jesus doesn't mean you're automatically mature. You're saved. You're set free. You're going to heaven. You're just going to be changed on the way as you get there. Second myth is this, that Christians are better at loving others than yet to be Christians. Or Christians are better at loving others than those who don't believe. Not true. Should be true, but not true. Why? You have the, you, let me say this, you have the capacity. You don't have the empowerment to do it, but will you choose to do it? That's the question. If we say, well, Josh, I disagree with that. We are better. Well, let's just take a look at some statistics. I'm not going to give you the statistics, but if we look at categories, statistically speaking, the divorce rate is not any lower in the church than it is outside. Sexual immorality, poor parenting, greed, conflict, and anger, all about the same. Why? Because we're human beings. We're still susceptible to those things. Although we are, we are transformed internally, hear me, that internal transformation has to begin to make its way out into our lives. We have to choose to participate with God in that process. And so it's really important that we don't go around just believing these myths, okay, that I'm better at something because I'm a Christ follower. No, you're saved and set free, but you still screw up. But for the grace of God, where would we be? Where would we go? All right? We should become more humble when we become a Christ follower. And I'm going to share four things here in just a moment of how we can really love well and how we can become a more emotionally mature uh, Christ follower and just person in general. But what I want to do is this, kind of ask the question, where am I at emotionally? I'm going to give you a little scale here. Now, this scale isn't meant to shame you or make you feel guilty. It's just to be a reference point. And it's not a reference point for where you are at uh, all the time, but where you could even be on particular issues and, and times that, that people do things or say things that you respond in certain ways, you can just identify yourself, okay? So here's the, the categories. And what's really nice is back at the resource uh, desk or online, faithcommunity.co slash surface tension, you can get this whole thing. A little bit's on your note sheet. And it's these four emotional stages, okay? The first one is an emotional infant, all right? Now, what do emotional infants do? Well, emotional infants often look for others to take care of them. They are driven by a need for instant gratification. 
They have great difficulty having empathy or entering into the world of others. And they use others as objects to meet their needs. All right? That's what emotional infants can be. See, I'm going to use they, not you, because I know none of you would be here, right? They. <laughs> Me, maybe, but I don't know about you. Emotional children are content and happy as long as they receive what they want. Unravel quickly from, dis- from stress and disappointments. Interpret disagreements as personal offenses. Are easily hurt. They complain, withdraw, manipulate, take revenge, become sarcastic when they don't get their way. You know anybody like that? Have great difficulty calmly discussing their needs and wants in a mature and loving way. Emotional uh, children. Emotional adolescent, a teenager, emotional teenager. Tend to be, uh, often be defensive. Are threatened and alarmed by criticism. Keep score of what they give so they can ask for something in return later. Deal with conflict poorly, often blaming, appeasing, going to a third party, pouting. Anybody know a powder? Or ignoring the issue entirely. They become so preoccupied with themselves that they have great difficulty truly listening to another person's pain, disappointments, or needs. They're often very critical and judgmental. It's an emotional adolescent. An emotional adult is what we're all aiming for and probably where we all are here this morning, okay? We're able to ask for what we need, want, and prefer clearly, directly, and honestly. We recognize, manage, and take responsibility for our own thoughts and feelings. We can, when under stress, state our beliefs and values without becoming adversarial, and we can respect others without having to change them. We give people room to make mistakes and not be perfect. Appreciate people for who they are, the ugly, the good, the bad, and not for what they give back. We can accurately assess our own limits, our weaknesses, and are able to freely discuss them with others. We're deeply in tune with our own emotional world and able to enter into the feelings, needs, and concerns of others without losing ourselves. And finally, we have the capacity to resolve conflict maturely and negotiate solutions that consider the perspective of others. Now, I give you that, that scale. Again, not to make you feel guilty and not to try to identify yourself where you're at all the time, but to kind of help you sense maybe where you are. If you were to take this, this scale and it would be a transparency and you could put it over your life, you could see at different seasons and times or moments how you responded and to see where you fall on the scale. Say, here I was a child here I was an infant. Here I was an adult. See, this is not, not static. I think it's dynamic. You can be at different spots at different times depending on what's going on. Often, time plays a really big role in this. What do you mean? Somebody does something and it just angers you. And you are going to respond like an infant. You know it. I guarantee you, if you take a deep breath and wait a minute, you might just be a child. If you wait an hour, you're probably an adolescent. If you do something like they used to say, sleep on it, you're probably going to be an emotional adult about it. I would encourage you to sleep on it. It's harder and harder to sleep on it anymore because of technology. Right? Someone says something, they're passive aggressive. Instead of coming to you in person, they send you a text message. Isn't that wonderful? Let me just say this right here. If you have conflict, don't do it in writing. Don't email. Don't Facebook. Don't text. Write it out, look at it yourself, see if it's legitimate, put it away, get the guts, and go talk to somebody to their face. How can you say that? Well, that's what Jesus said to do in Matthew 18. If you can't do that, don't send the text message. Now, hey, there are extenuating circumstances where you need to share your heart with somebody, and maybe the only appropriate way to do it is in writing. But that should never be your MO of dealing with conflict. One of our operational values here is no strife. Problems go up, they don't go down. 
Go to the person whom, with whom you have an issue. Don't go talk to other people about it and then pray with each other and just gossip. Okay? Sleep on it. I threw that one in there about the, the conflict thing. That one's free for you guys, okay? Just don't do it. It's just ridiculous. It's infantile. All right? I hate strife. Hate it with a passion. Why? Strife destroys families. Strife destroys church, churches. Strife destroys relationships. I'm a firm believer. I know I'm, a, I, I'm an idealist. I'm a firm believer. You sit down across the table from somebody, you got a really good chance of working it out. Really good chance. They're extenuating circumstances. I get it. Okay? Take time. Allow yourself to see how mature you really are. When possible, refrain from being instant. I think instant almost always equals infant. Instant almost always equals infant. Now, you may be more mature, and in that instant, you can just go, okay, let's do this. One of the great things that Lauren does in our relationship is she says, hey, I need a moment because I'm really mad right now, and I don't want to say something that I don't mean. I don't want a moment. (laughs) I don't get angry as it relates to, you know, I don't yell. I'm not a screamer. Uh, I I would say I don't say things I don't mean. That's not true. I just get very sharp with my words, and my mind is on, and I can cut deeply. So we're going to deal with this right now. And maybe if you had enough self-control, you wouldn't need a break. (laughs) I've said that before. You can imagine how that went over, right? I think it's, it's very mature of her to say, let's take a break. Let's come back around where we can talk about this and we're most, we can both be an adult about it. Sleep on it. Take some time. This is a great tool for you to just to kind of look at yourself and say, yeah, right now I am really using you as an object to meet my needs, so I need to take a deep breath. Give me five minutes. Let me look at this over. Let me pray. Let me invite the Holy Spirit into this and see where I go from here, okay? So good. And then you can, I think you can just kind of just slowly but surely grow into that process of becoming an emotional adult a majority of the time with the help of the Holy Spirit, okay? So that's out there. That's free for you. It's good stuff. Uh, What I want to share with you here is just how we can really become an emotionally mature adult just by doing these four things. These things are like Dostoevsky said. They are wonderful in dreams. They're difficult in reality, okay? Theoretically, Man, this is going to be so easy. In practice, it's going to be difficult. Here's the first thing is this, is you have to accept the past. If you want to be emotionally mature, believer, and just person, accept the past. It happened to you, and you did it, and you can't change it. I mean, I'm I'm sad. I'm sorry that it happened to you. I'm sure it was very, very bad. And I'm not trying to minimize it, rationalize it, or make light of it. But you can't change it. You can't change it. So many times we allow our past to define us rather than to explain us. There's a big, defini- the big di- difference between defining and explaining. When you can get to the point where you can look at your past and say, this happened to me, it was horrible, it was wrong, the person should have never done it, I did this, it was wrong, but that doesn't define me. That just explains me. That's a huge thing. When you can accept your past or the past, You will see what God can do. He will take that past, he will take that mess, and he will make it a testimony for you. You'll be able to help other people. You'll be able to explain what happened and say, but God intervened, healed my heart, healed that situation. And you will see a greater level of connectability with people. Your credibility with people will go up. Nobody wants to hear how good you are. 
Nobody wants to hear how many mistakes you haven't made. People want to know, when, you screwed up. How did you overcome? How did you, how did you navigate this situation? How did you do that? You say, here, this is what I did. Man, honesty is, and, and just clarity about where you've been and what you've done, it's just, it levels the playing field. People are drawn to that. Accept your past. You have to. Because no matter, you, you could spend the majority of your life trying to undo this, something you did or someone did, and you will never move beyond that. And this, this does sound cold, but it happened. It happened. But God. But God. Accept the past. Number two is you have to accept yourself. Accept ourselves. This is so important. It's so important to accept who you are because your capacity to love others, I believe, is inextricably linked to your capacity to love you. You say, well, no, no, no. I can love others without loving myself. Sure. I believe you can. But I think people become so aware of when someone is so insecure and doesn't love them. It can become a burden on the person you're trying to love. Because if you don't love yourself, you're going to love with an agenda. What's the agenda? Loving so they can approve me. Loving so they can value me. Loving so they can make me feel better. And you are using them as an object and you're an emotional infant or child. Because you are loving not with the intent of being selfless, but the intent of being selfish. Love is... By nature, selfless. You have to be able to get in the mirror and look at yourself in the mirror with all the scars and all the things in your life and be able to say, I accept me. Not because you're amazing and you're great and you've done all these wonderful things, but because God loves you and because God accepts you. How many of you have seen the movie Cool Runnings? It's a great movie, right? Wonderful. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. I think it's on Netflix. The Jamaican bobsled team, right? These guys in Jamaica had an idea to have a bobsled team. And there's a, beautiful, there's a great scene, I don't know if it's beautiful, it's great, where there's one guy who's, who comes from a rich side of town, right? And he's very insecure, his father's very demanding, he doesn't have a lot of, you know, uh, uh, um, self, uh, I can't even think of the word, uh, confidence, there you go, confidence. And uh, there's this other guy who's like this brute, he's got, you know, bald head, and uh, they're standing looking in the mirror, and I can't quote the whole scene because he says some choice words, but uh, he says, he's looking in the scene, he goes, I see pride, I see power. Right? And he said, repeat after me. And he's like, I see pride. I see pride. He said, like, repeat after me louder. I see pride. And he starts to yell, I see power. And he starts to believe in himself. I think that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He's our paraclete. He, he's at our side at all times. And when there's this negative narrative in your head about who you are and what you are, it's the Holy Spirit that's there to speak the words of God over you. You're my son. You're my daughter. You have value because I created you. Yes, you have a past, but I have healed you and I have set you free. And you are gifted and you are talented. The question is, what voice are we going to listen to? Our own or the voice of God through the power of the Holy Spirit? You start to love you, oh, you can love other people. And you're free to love without them ever giving you anything in return. That's a great gift to give somebody. Imagine being able to raise your kids and teach them to be confident in who they are not insecure, not trying to compensate for something or someone or a lack of this or a lack of that. God, you love me just as I am. And even as I get better, you're not going to love me anymore. You know, God's love for you does not grow. What grows is your ability to receive it and understand it. His love for you just is. It just is. And this is, this is so important. 
as you learn to accept yourself. Here's the thing, one of the things I want to do. I want to ask you this question. You don't have to answer me, but when you think about it, is there anything in your life that you're just really proud of? Don't tell me your kids. That's a given. Maybe it isn't a given, but it should be. About you. I struggled for a long time to say, I'm proud of this. I'm proud of myself for doing this. And I don't believe that's arrogance. It can lead to arrogance. What are you proud of? Take an inventory of that. Be able to say, I'm proud. For the longest time, I, I wanted to say, I was proud of graduating college. I'm like, hey, a lot of people graduate college. Who cares? Plus, I still got to pay my loans off. <laughs> but I'm like, no, no, I'm proud. I went to college. I did it. That's one thing I'm proud of. If you didn't go to college, I'm not saying anything. I'm proud of that. I, I'm proud of some of the decisions that I've made to be where I'm at today. I give God the credit, but I, I'm proud. Proud of who I am in spite of and with the failures that I've had along the way. I think it's an important thing. It's not wrong to be able to say, I'm proud. Teach your kids to be proud of who they are, what they do. Accept yourself. So huge. Third, and this is most important, is you've got to accept God. What do you mean accept God? There's a theologian. His name's, uh, his name's Phil Tillich. He says this, Christians need to accept our acceptance. We need to accept our acceptance. What does that mean? He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is good news. That's what it means. It means good news. What is the good news? Hey, you're a sinner. You have no way or no capacity to make yourself good enough for God. So God came down, and in the person of Jesus Christ, he loved you while you were still a sinner, and he saved you. Why the gospel is good news is because the only thing that qualifies you for the gospel is being a sinner, is screwing up. That's good stuff. If you don't need the gospel, and if you ain't screwing up, why are you here? The thing that qualified you for the gospel is the very thing you hate about yourself. God isn't proud of that, but God's ultimate response to your sin is Jesus, is grace. Grace is the unearned, unmerited favor of God. And more importantly, grace is not a concept. Grace is not some theological idea that we try to unpack in church. No, no, no. Grace is a person. The Bible says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came in Jesus. Grace and truth came in Jesus. Grace is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And if you want grace, all you have to do is say, I screwed up. I sinned. I need help. And the good news of the gospel rushes in and you are forgiven and you are set free. That's some good stuff, right? Yeah. At some point we move beyond that and we turn church into some competition of who's more holy. That's stupid. That's the antithesis of the gospel. That's us measuring ourselves against other people and that destroys community and that destroys relationship. God doesn't love Danny Quick over there who's an elder in this church more than he does someone who their first time over here may be. God loved Danny way before he became an elder in this church. And when he became an elder, God wasn't like, whoa, I think I love Danny 10% more now. <laughs> Not at all. God's love for us is consistent and constant. The only thing, like I said, we grow in is our understanding and reception of it. So whatever it is you may have here this morning, whatever sin you may have, let me tell you this, it's not greater than God's grace. 
Paul said we receive an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, and we shall reign in life through Jesus Christ. Listen to that, an abundance. Say abundance. Abundance Abundance of grace. He said where sin abounds, grace superabounds. He's saying grace is greater than sin every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Right? We sang this old hymn, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. Not some, all, all. Here's the thing. When God looks at you, if you're in Christ, God sees his son. Colossians says we are hidden in Christ. When God sees you, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see my failure. No, he saw it all in the person of Jesus and he punished that sin, past, present, and future, all in the person of Jesus. So when he sees you, he sees his son because of the grace of God. And you are free without expecting punishment when you fail to come to God. And what's he gonna give you? Grace. What's he gonna give you? Forgiveness. That's good stuff. I love Paul wrote this in Romans. He said, I have not received the spirit of bondage to fear again, but I have received the spirit of sonship, whereby I call you Abba, Father. Thus the spirit of God testifies according with my spirit that I am a child of God. That's what Paul said. I have not received the spirit of bondage to fear again. What's that? The fear of punishment. The fear of eternal separation. I've not received that spirit from God. No, I've received, received the spirit of adoption. I've been adopted. And my spirit says, I call you Abba, Father. Abba literally means daddy. He said, thus the Holy Spirit of God testifies to me, I am a child of God. So when you're looking in the mirror and you're not feeling like a child of God, what's the Holy Spirit doing? Hey, you are a child of God. Hey, you failed, but hey, the Holy, the, the, Jesus Christ is here to forgive you and set you free. God loves you. He never leaves you nor forsakes you. You cannot exhaust his love for you. You cannot exhaust his love for another person. You want to learn how to love well, accept God. You want to learn how to love well, stop trying to have a competition with God. Stop keeping a scorecard with him and turn it in at the end of every day, thinking, seeing if you did good enough. The gospel is not do good, get good, do bad, get bad. The gospel fundamentally is you did bad, you got really good. You got Jesus, the great exchange. That's the message of Christianity. Unlike any other world religion, that's what we've got, the message of grace which is not an idea. It is a person. It is a person. And the Holy Spirit longs to reveal the person of Jesus. You want to know when you're going to get a greater revelation of Jesus? I'm talking about when you start to see him in your failures and your sin. That's when you'll see Jesus come alive. And you ain't going to want to do it anymore. Because the goodness of God leads us to repentance. It's amazing. I could stay here on this message for the rest of the year. And we still be unpacking it. But we got one more point to go so we can get out of here, right? So accept your past, accept yourself, accept God. And here's the last one, which is hard, accept others. How do I accept others? First, you love them. Secondly, you need them. And third, you release them. How do I love them? Patiently, kindly, without arrogance, without being rude, without self-seeking. You endure all things, you bear all things. You hope all things. How do I do that? You got to invite the Holy Spirit into that. You, you may be sitting next to somebody right now and you're like, I don't know how much love I got for them. Right? You may be thinking of somebody right now like, I don't know. I, I ain't got no capacity left to love them. What do you do? Just close your eyes. You invite the Holy Spirit into that. Holy Spirit, help me love this individual. Whether it's a spouse, friend, family member, coworker. Help me love them 
according to 1 Corinthians 13. Help me to love them without expecting a feeling. Help me to love them, start loving them today, even though I don't feel a thing. Because love is an action. Love is a decision. Love is an attitude. Make the decision to love people. Number two, need them. You need people. John Donne famously wrote, the English poet, no man is an island unto himself. You need people. I don't, I don't like people. I don't care. You need them. Well, I'm an introvert, see? Okay, I'm an extrovert. What's your point? Being an introvert is not an excuse to not need people. You need people. You need them. That's why we encourage you guys to get in a small group. Meet somebody. Well, it's difficult to meet new people. And what else you got? You know what I mean? Meet people. Be vulnerable with people. Get in a relationship with people. You experience the love of Christ in community. God himself exists and dwells in eternal community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There are some people you don't need, so get rid of them. Okay? Need the right people. Need people who help you and benefit you, not people who are trying to destroy you. Okay? Three, release them. What does that mean? Oh, just let them be who they are. Let them be who they are. The Bible said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. Peacemakers. Peacemaker is something you choose to be. Peacekeeper is something you're trying to be. Right? Be a peacemaker. Just say, as for me and my house, we're going to have peace. You're not going to bring that strife in here. If you want to do that, go in the front yard. Right? I'm not going to bring that business in here. I'm going to be a peacemaker. But I'm not going to try to be a peacekeeper. Some of us are just running around trying to keep the peace in everybody's life. We ain't no peace in our life. There's false peacemaking too. Right? Sometimes keeping peace is confronting. Having tough conversations. See, if you try to keep the peace, you don't confront. When you try to make peace, you deal with what's right in front of you so that peace can be present. And my, my encouragement to you is take the first step. Because when you do that, you can just release people. Just let people be who they are. They screw up, let them do that. How do I let people be who they are? Take an inventory of two things. Your expectations of yourself and your expectations of them. Expectations kill relationships faster than anything. Especially those which are uncommunicated. As you take inventory of your expectations, you're going to find two things. Number one, your expectations of yourself, way too high. Your expectations of other people, way too high. Bring them on down. Bring them on down to reality. Are you telling me expect less of people? Yes, you'll be happier. You'll be happier. You'll be happier. Place your expectations in God. Let him fulfill you. And may you be a benefit and a benefactor for other people. That's a huge thing. Release them. And continue to work on loving God, loving people the way that he says in 1 Corinthians 13, tapping into that power, that flow of God's love. I asked him in our planning meeting if he could sing that song this morning, Oh Love of God, because I love the way it illustrates the love of God. I think we don't write like that anymore. You know, if we could drain the ocean dry, just like I'm a sucker for poetic stuff. So, I mean... But it's just beautiful. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels' song. When you, when you are in a situation where it's so tough to maybe love yourself or love other people, may you realize the well of God's love is not run dry. And it'll never run dry. And you have to get to that well. How do I get to that well? Why don't you implement some of the things Pastor Charles said last week about rest and Sabbath? 
Maybe the reason why you can't rest well is because you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off. Stop. Rest. Receive the love of God. And start to love others well. Not on your own, but through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to pray for you. I just want to remind you, send in your questions. I think they'll have that phone number up there again, 314-485-9494. Go on the website. Really want to hear from you. I don't want to stare at you for 35 minutes next week. Uh, I want us to grow together. I'm so excited of what God is doing in this church, how we're all growing. I have such a, just, I didn't say this in, in, in to the nine o'clock crowd, but I just have such a great sense of anticipation of what God is doing and what he wants to do. And I could be totally wrong, but I don't care. I just, I just really believe that God is up to something, not just for us individually, but for people who in this community who don't yet know him. He's helping us become more mature, not for ourselves, but so that we can help other people. He's helping us accept our past, accept others and accept God so that we can accept others. And there are so many others who don't yet know him. I'm just super excited. I just wanted to throw that in there. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I love you so much. I love everybody that's here. Father, we love everyone who isn't here. We just thank you that, that you are so great. You are so gracious. Help us to love other people. Help us to not categorize people as it's or they or them or it by how they act at all times. But God, help us just to love people and see them as you see them, not separating ourselves from the fact that you loved us while we were yet sinners. I just pray for anybody that's here this morning, God, like myself, who have struggled to look in the mirror and be proud, who struggled with maybe self-loathing and self-identity issues. Lord, may you just reveal the person of Jesus to them right now. Freedom. May they not see themselves as a mistake or an accident or without intention, but may they see they are the product of an intentional, loving, gracious, heavenly Father who takes us scars and all and produces something beautiful of it. Help us to be proud of who we are, of who we are becoming. Just freedom in this place. Help us to to manage our expectations well, to submit them to you, God. Holy Spirit, we invite you in our lives. We give you freedom and we partner with you to become emotionally mature people. It doesn't happen in an instant. Oh, we're saved in an instant. But yet we grow over the process of and the journey of our lives. Holy Spirit, we thank you. Show us Jesus this week. Bring us back safe next week. And we pray this all in the person in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. Amen.